when you reduce a human to a machine or an animal, in doing that, you undermine everything that is uniquely human, our moral sense, our religious sensibilities, um, our experience of freedom and choice. All of those things have to go. They have to disappear. The possibility of science itself, because science depends on us having dependable cognitive faculties. But if those cognitive faculties are just the result of uncaring, unplanned, random processes, then we don't have any grounds for having confidence in them. Welcome to the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with Brad Sickler. Brad currently serves as an Associate Professor of Philosophy and the Program Director for the Master of Arts in Theological Studies at the University of Northwestern St. Paul. He's also the author of God on the Brain, What Cognitive Science Does and Does Not Tell Us About Faith, Human Nature, and the Divine from Crossway. Today, Brad and I discuss how Christians should think about recent developments in our understanding of the brain and cognitive science. He explains why all science entails philosophical assumptions stemming from a person's worldview, highlights how science and the Bible both speak to the physical and spiritual dimensions of what it means to be human, and answers the question we've all wondered, is it true that we only use 10% of our brains? Let's get started. Brad, thank you so much for joining us today on the Crossway Podcast. Well, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. So I was uh, doing a little bit of reading about you before uh, we sat down here today, and you seem to be a man of many interests. So I just, uh, looking at the list of things that you've published or contributions you made to books is pretty telling. So one uh, article, I think, was Laws of Nature and God's Existence. Uh, another particularly interesting one, Must Immortality Be Tedious? Right. <laughs> Which uh, <laughs> I think all of us who kind of have this picture of sitting on clouds forever have maybe wondered. Um, there was a dictionary entry on Pascal's wager, uh, and then a lecture entitled, could, could a better God have made a better world? Uh, and that's just a few examples. I guess my question is, what's behind such an eclectic set of professional interests? Well, that's a good question, and I think a, sh a shrewd and accurate observation. I have many interests, and I've always been a curious person. I've always been a wide reader. Um, I always listened to talk radio, you know, in sixth, mm. seventh grade, my friends were talking about music and I was talking about what I'd listened to on the radio the night before. Um, and I, I bounced around a lot as a college student uh, between different majors. I ended up majoring in physics and uh, tried a few different things along the way too, including um, I got very interested in medieval English literature. I considered teaching Spanish, uh, piano performance. <laughs> Chemical engineering is how I started out. And so I wandered around a lot. And it took me a long time to figure out where I belonged. And that was really in the world of philosophy. Because um, part of what I like about philosophy is we put our nose into everybody else's mm, business. Yeah. And it's, it's by its nature um, a very comprehensive, kind of all-inclusive sort of field. So uh, after I got my physics major and decided not to pursue that, I went to seminary and um, got interested in philosophy in particular. Uh, thought I would maybe pursue theology, but definitely wanted to go into the academic world. And uh, ended up getting a PhD in philosophy. And I have done a lot on philosophy of science 
um, because of my background and my own interest in science. Again, when I was a, when I was a youngster, uh, for my birthday, I would ask for a subscription to Scientific American and Discover <laughs> magazine. So when I was in middle school and high school, that was my, that was my yeah. hobby, along with reading fantasy. So yeah, I, I've always had a, a kind of an eclectic mm. collection of tastes, but um, the problem of evil is something that I've uh, dealt with a lot and other, other issues are about science and the faith and how they connect and how they intersect. And most of what I do ends up having, um, from my perspective anyway, a, a kind of apologetic approach. Mm. And I, I want to help people understand their faith and um, that it's reasonable and be able to present it and make a case for it in other contexts. And so when I see a problem or I see a challenge, um, I like to try to bring a biblical perspective uh, aided by some philosophical reflection and maybe some scientific background in addressing that and helping uh, equip people to think through it. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Most recently, you've done some work on the intersection of uh, recent developments in cognitive science, brain science, and faith, uh, what it means to be religious, have faith in God. Um, can you first briefly define what we mean by cognitive science? What, what is that? Well, it's a broad, uh, again, multidisciplinary approach. And sometimes I use the word maybe a little more loosely than other people might like it. But um, if, we, if we think of it as all things related to how we think. So there are, there are other aspects of studying and talking about the brain. Um, you can think about it just neurologically, just as a kind of mechanical system and how the parts interact. Um, and you can think about it psychologically, and uh, cognitive science is more in the, the vein of trying to think about how we think and how we get mm. to where we're thinking. And that, of course, is going to have connections to all of the other underlying fundamental structures of the brain as well. So cognitive science integrates psychology and neuroscience and um, even, to some extent, theology or philosophy, mm. too. Yeah, that's the interesting thing about philosophy. You mentioned how that has been uh, an interest of yours. It seems like with all these different fields, um, even the scientific fields, the more you dig in, the more you see that there are philosophical uh, foundations to each of these, that we all come to these different fields, uh, even purportedly evidentiary types of fields uh, with philosophical assumptions. You are totally singing my song. That is exactly how I see things. If you take something that is often, uh, you take, take like um, A Brief History of Time, for example. Now there's a book that people would say, well, that's science, right? It's, it's uh, cosmology. And that was, that was written by uh, the Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking. Right. Yep. yep. And that book is, you know, most of the really interesting things in that book, the things that get people talking and the things that get people reading the next chapter, are really philosophical or theological reflections on the science. They're not actually the science, what the science itself says. So if you restrain what you call, call science to the observation and classification of data, then that calls for reflection. And the reflection, in my opinion, is where a lot of the interesting stuff happens. When I said I was a physics major earlier, part of the reason I got interested in that, I left engineering to go into physics, is because I was interested in what I now understand are the philosophical issues. Mm. So modern physics, starting in, we usually say 1905, 
um, with relativity, special and general, they both bring a whole set of really interesting philosophical questions. And the thing is, in the early 20th century, those physicists understood how much of what they were doing was philosophical. And Einstein even said, if it weren't for his interest and background in philosophy, he probably wouldn't have had the, the cognitive equipment to generate some of the interesting theories he, mm. he did. And quantum mechanics is the same way. You have these very bizarre things going on, whether it's duality, the wave-particle duality, or whether it's uh, you know, the observation effect, or whether it's entanglement, action at a distance, quantum mechanical tunneling. All these different things really call for all kinds of philosophical mm. interpretation because they're, they're so bizarre. And that's what hooked me. And I didn't, it, it wasn't until many years later that I realized, oh, what I really liked wasn't the math or the computations. It was thinking about these philosophical questions. Yeah. Well, what's so fascinating to me is that uh, many of the kind of prominent um, scientists, I think of someone like a Bill Nye or Neil deGrasse Tyson, these guys who are kind of pop, pop culture-wise pretty prominent uh, secular scientists thinkers, um, they seem to be pretty down on philosophy. They don't seem to uh, sometimes very explicitly kind of degrade philosophy as an endeavor and kind of say, well, no, this, this scientific process and method is, is really the only way to find truth. In the mid-20th century, that's again, yes, that's totally right. I completely agree. In the mid-20th century, there was really uh, an experimental turn when a lot of these issues had, you know, the, the foundations had been put in place, and then it just became about experimenting. Can we verify these predictions, right? Can we build massive particle accelerators, and can we probe deep into space? Can we figure out if some of the things that we're saying uh, lead to testable predictions that we can verify? So there was a, a turn away from that, and Richard Feynman, a Nobel Prize-winning physicist, used to very disparagingly say philosophy, and he would say <laughs> it like that, you know, with, with clear disdain. Yeah. Um, because he thought that that was just polluting the real science. But every philosopher of science knows that uh, science is loaded with all kinds of philosophical assumptions. And again, like I said, in my opinion, most of the interesting philosoph or most of the interesting things that come out of modern scientific speculation are really philosophical. And you, you raised Neil deGrasse Tyson as an example, and I think he's a great example of somebody who takes the data and then tells you what it means without telling you that that's what he's doing, or maybe even without even knowing that mm. that's what he's doing. So, for example, um, he would say, you know, he gets a lot of the history wrong on this too, but he would say something like, you know, back in the bad old days when people were stupid. Those are not his words, those are mm. mine. But back that's, in the, That's kind of the, the thrust of what he's saying. Right. In the old days, you know, people thought that we must be important, and they thought that the cosmos was created uh, to be a, a habitable home for us where we could, you know, learn to, to know and love God. And he said, now we know that the universe is not anything like that. It's trying to kill us. Um, it's indifferent to us. And it's a hostile place. We are insignificant within it. And you think about that, you know, what are you, what are you drawing that conclusion from? And one of the things he says is, or points to, is how vast the cosmos is. Sure, it's vast. We know it's, it's, it's mind-bogglingly vast. We can't conceive of how vast it is. If you take our solar system and shrink it down so you can put it in a teacup, just our galaxy in comparison will be as big as North America. And that's just our mm. galaxy. And there are 100 billion galaxies. So we can't, we, he's right that we, uh, it's mind-blowing how big it is. 
Um, should we conclude from that that we are insignificant accidents? I mean, that's a philosophical inference, isn't it? So, um, first of all, people have always known it was really big. Ptolemy said that uh, the distance between the Earth and the nearest star was so vast that you could treat the Earth as a mathematical point, which means of no size whatsoever. Yeah. So they've always known it was big. But um, if you think about it a different way, think about it like this, like what is most of that vast space composed of? And the answer is either nothing or maybe balls of hydrogen and helium or maybe balls of rock. So what in all of that that we're aware of is anything like us reflective? What else out there in the cosmos is reflecting on the cosmos, hmm. is reflecting on its place in the cosmos? Right. That seems to me that makes us extremely special, maybe even more special than if it was just a small little neighborhood that we lived in. If, if we learn that um, not only are we special on this little planet, but we're special within our solar system, within, as far as we know, uh, our galaxy and even in the universe itself, we know of nothing else like us. That seems to me that it makes us more special, not less. Mm. But that's philosophical interpretation. That's not science. Yeah. Yeah. You, in your book, you talk about this quote from C.S. Lewis that had a big impact on your decision to, to really dig into this issue in particular, um, the science of uh, cognition and how our brains relate to um, faith and religion. So I just want to read this quote from Lewis and then see uh, if you can comment on it. Uh, Lewis writes, if minds are wholly dependent on brains and brains on biochemistry and biochemistry in the long run on the meaningless flux of the atoms, I cannot understand how the thought of those minds should have any more significance than the sound of the wind in the trees. What's Lewis getting at with that? He's challenging the reduction of human nature to bags of atoms, random collections, collocations of atoms. And this concern about, uh, you know, he says other things there in that longer context about where do you fit mind in to a reductionist, materialist view of the cosmos like that. You can't do it. You, you end up throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And when you reduce a human to a machine or an animal, in doing that, you undermine everything that is uniquely human. Um, our, our moral sense, our religious sensibilities, um, our experience of freedom and choice, all of those things have to go. They have to disappear. The possibility of science itself because science depends on us having dependable cognitive faculties. But if those cognitive faculties are just the result of uncaring, um, unplanned, random processes, then we don't have any grounds for having confidence in them. Hmm. And therefore, we don't have any grounds for trusting the conclusions that we draw from them. And one of the things he says is, that in doing that, in arguing along those lines, what the atheist ultimately does is they undermine their own atheism. How so? Because they are drawing a conclusion with faculties that they have already shown are unreliable. So they, 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 they tell you that the water is poisoned, and then they ask you to drink it. Because the, if the atheist picture of human nature is right, we don't have any confidence that we can arrive at the truth. We don't have any confidence that our faculties are aimed at producing true beliefs. 
And uh, so we would be foolish to trust any of the conclusions that those cognitive faculties arrive at, like mm. that there is no God. So um, if atheism is true, we would never be able to have confidence or, uh, in our belief that atheism was true. So it undermines its own case. Mm. Yeah, fascinating. Uh, one thing that's always uh, really intrigued me ever since I first kind of encountered, uh, encountered these different uh, examples are these experiments that have been done over the years uh, related to the brain and often done with people who have suffered some kind of brain injury. And it kind of gets to the issue of uh, are we uh, spiritual beings where we have physical bodies but also souls and, and what have you, or are we just, as like the atheistic materialists would say, just, uh, just bodies, just bags of cells. Um, but these experiments where people have had brain injuries and then on the other side of the injury, they've kind of had radically different personalities or they've, um, they've all of a sudden um, uh, had uh, frustration problems where they get angry super easily and they lash out and they can't seem to control their temper anymore. And, and the, the kind of the result of these studies has been, yeah, there seems to be some physical, biological connection to, uh, to behaviors and attitudes and um, habits that seem to have a strong ethical or moral or even spiritual dimension to them. So how, how do you view those kinds of examples where um, it seems like that might suggest that um, really what we view as mind or soul or spirit, these things that aren't physical things about us, are actually really connected to our physical brains? Well, that's a great question, and I think it's one of the, the main challenges uh, to think about if you are a dualist like me and you believe that we're spiritual beings. The first thing I would point out is um, you're, you give some examples, and uh, you know one of the famous examples was a guy named Phineas Gage who had a spike blown through his head, <laughs> oh, which would normally kill a person, but he survived. Um, however, everyone noted that he had formerly been a calm and gentle and fairly pious person and he became uh, you know, irascible and foul-mouthed and foul-tempered. And um, they, they now look back on that. You'll, if you ever take a psychology class or something like that, you might study this. They'll say, well, this, because the following parts of his brain were damaged by the spike that blew through his head. And those are connected to emotion regulation and things like that. So they'll, they'll map it onto that. But one thing I would point out is the, the details have, we have really, really dug down into the details of these things. But the fact that different parts of the brain are connected to different mental functions is not new. And it, in fact, has been known for thousands of years. Um, the, the, the Greeks, for example, who they liked war, mm. um, and the Romans, the same thing. If you think about the way combat was done in those days, very close quarters, um, you know, lots of hard knocks to the head and things like that. And they, they had drawn correlations between damage to different parts of the head and uh, subsequent loss of function or subsequent personality changes even. Wow. So these things are not actually, we sometimes uh, have these prejudices against, you know, the, the old days when people didn't know anything. But they had, they had already drawn that. And other minor changes, like we, we know now we can give somebody uh, lithium, for example, and that might help with um, some kind of psychotic episode they're happen having, or a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor might affect their depression or anxiety, an SSRI. So we, we now have you know, much 
sharper um, understanding of that and, and we can operate on brain tumors and predict that you, you may have difficulty remembering um, you know, or, or uh, orienting yourself spatially because of where this tumor was. So we have a much more detailed picture. But the, but the big picture that there is a connection between our mental life and our brain is not something new. Uh, think of the old uh, Roman expression, in vino veritas, in wine there is truth. Or, or think of the, the proverb that wine is a mocker and beer is a brawler. What they're picking up on, what they understood, was that if you ingest these things, it's going to change your body, and by changing your body, it changes your mental states. It changes your mind. So even you know, in the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, if you think about it that way, they're, they're perceiving a connection between what happens in your body, the presence of wine or beer, for example, and what happens in your brain. It makes you a mocker. It makes you a brawler. Your mental life is affected. So observant people have always known that the state of our body and the state of our brain are connected. We've always known about the effect of, even if they weren't understood as hormones, the effect of hormones on mood or the effect of hunger on mood, for example, or fatigue on mood, um, which is why when Elijah was so distraught, the Lord gave him food and rest because that's mm. how yeah. you address those. So we don't want a primitive view of the relationship between mind and body the way that uh, sometimes Plato described it, um, a hand in a glove or a, a carpenter using a tool or a musician using an instrument. In those kinds of cases, the mind is not integrated with the body. It is just kind of within it and manipulating it from the outside yeah. without itself being part of it. Almost so, like a man in a machine. Yeah, and that man in a machine, uh, or Gilbert Ryle's ghost in the machine, uh, which is obviously a very insulting way of trying to talk about dualism. If you think about um, René Descartes, who wrote about um, the relation between mind and body in a lot of his works in the 17th century, he was a French philosopher. Um, the way he talks about it is to say we should not think of ourselves as a pilot in a ship or a captain in a ship. If you think about a pilot in a ship, if the ship hits uh, a reef or something, the pilot looks down and sees the damage and perceives it, but doesn't feel anything. That doesn't cause pain. And Descartes said the, the Christian way of doing it, and he's drawing on centuries of scholastic Christian philosophy and theology, the Christian way of thinking about us as humans is as an integrated unit of material and immaterial, of physical and spiritual. And that there is a conceptual distinction between mind and brain, but at least while we're embodied, you can't just kind of pull the mind out of, of the brain or of the body. We are an integrated unit. So that kind of integrative dualism is what I believe is most biblical and most philosophically defensible. And it also makes perfect sense of all of the brain science that we know. Um, there is mental to physical and physical to mental causation. Um, and because we are an integrated unit, changing any part of that unit, whether it's the body through the brain or whether it's you know, causing pain in some part of the body or pleasure in some part of the body, um, that those affect our mental life because we are an integrated whole. We are a, a unit. Mm. 
It's interesting. So if, if materialistic scientists, non-Christians sort of tend towards obviously um, emphasizing the physical body uh, as the, the only uh, reality that matters to us, do you think it's fair to say that Christians sometimes have been guilty of emphasizing just the spiritual side of their personhood and neglecting the, the, the more complex realities of how the, our brains and the, the, you know, our bodies themselves can actually influence our spiritual lives? Yes. I think it, it is a difficult balance to maintain. And I think, like you're suggesting, naturalists and atheists and materialists tend to fall off on one side, you know, drive into the ditch on one side of the road. Um, and Christians have certainly sometimes driven into the other ditch. Um, I, I know of somebody who used to say, I'm not sick, my body is sick, mm. he would say. So I tell myself, you know, when I'm feeling sick, it's not me, it's just my body. Yeah. And I don't think that's the right way to do it either because I am sick. And what I am, you know, if you, wanna, if you, if you do want to metaphysically parse that out, it's the sickness is in the body, but I am that unit. So in virtue of my body being sick, I am sick. I hold hands with my wife. It's not just my body holds hands with my wife's body. I hold my wife's hand. Um, so yeah, it's easy to, to slide into those, those uh, ways of talking about yeah. it or thinking about but it. But you would say that they're both equally sort of unbiblical, not truly uh, reflecting what Scripture teaches us about ourselves. Yeah, so sometimes even in Scripture, um, when people talk about souls and spirits, you know, you think about um, when Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit exalts in God my Savior. Sometimes that talk just means I myself with all of my being, right? My soul, my, my down to my innermost being magnifies the Lord. But very clearly other times that soul or spirit is treated as a metaphysically unique entity that is distinct from the body hmm. and that can survive the death of the body. So even in scripture, sometimes the, the usage is, you know, it covers both of those kinds of yeah, applications. Yeah, yeah. So the, turning a little bit more back towards the, the, the science of belief, there, there's a whole new field. Maybe it's not new, but it's maybe more recently been uh, given a name, the, the cognitive science of religion that uh, is, is made up of uh, scientists who kind of want to explain faith and belief uh, from a materialistic perspective. Can you explain kind of what, what that is, the cognitive science of religion, and what some of the explanations for faith or belief that they offer? It is, uh, it, it's an attempt to answer the question, why do people tend to be religious? And um, it tries to do that from again, psychological, sometimes evolutionary psychology, uh, or even neurological perspective. Um, so if you, if you look at some of the things that count as religious belief, it's not just belief in a, a single monotheistic God. There are um, other kinds of spiritual beliefs, um, ancestor worship or belief in spirit beings inhabiting trees or forests or things like that, um, or other kinds of gods that are, you know, don't rise to the level of power and wisdom and goodness of the biblical God. All of those kinds of things, including uh, that we have souls, including that uh, we survive the death of our bodies, 
including that nature in many of its aspects is teleological or it has a design or a purpose. All of those things are often lumped in with what is investigated here in cognitive science of religion. And so the question is, developmentally, neurologically, sociologically, psychologically, how do those beliefs form? What happens when they don't form? Does something go wrong? Um, to what extent is that belief natural? Uh, if it is natural, to what extent is its naturalness, uh, does that lend credibility to it? So you can approach this as a believer or as an unbeliever, and there are cognitive science uh, scientists of religion who approach it as believers mm. and those who approach it as unbelievers. Um, sometimes there are, there's common ground, sometimes there's not, but um, a lot of people think that the reason we're religious, so a lot of skeptics or naturalists think that the reason we're religious is, is simply because somehow or other it provided some sort of uh, survival or reproduction advantage, some kind of evolutionary bonus came from it. Maybe it came directly, maybe um, it came indirectly. So trying to tell a narrative, why is it that we, we tend to believe in God? Um, even if your starting point is because that's how God made us, there's still a lot that you can say. How does that play out in terms of developmental psychology? You know, how, how do these childhood beliefs um, either become solidified or weakened based on other inputs or based on reflection and experience. And you can see trends that, you know, right. over whole groups of people that, yeah, that you can kind of almost predict even sometimes. Right, so it can, it can draw on anthropology and cultural studies and um, early childhood education and developmental psychology. I mean, all these different things are, are part of the purview of cognitive science of religion. Anything that is asking that question, how is religious belief formed and maintained? Hmm. So some of these naturalistic skeptics would even take that further and say, um, maybe logically say that, well, uh, if even the science of belief, uh, or even if belief itself can kind of be explained away with an evolutionary um, kind of explanation or cause, um, we can go even further and say that even morality itself or our sense of right and wrong uh, also would sort of have a similar type of utility that doesn't necessarily reflect any kind of objective truth out there. Um, how many of them would go that far? In your opinion, is that like a, a reasonable step for them to make in terms of logical consistency? Uh, and, and kind of what would our response be to that? Well, that's a good way to ask the question. That it is a reasonable thing for them to try to do. The question is, can they pull it off? And I think that they generally don't. Um, this, this question, what are the moral implications of a naturalistic evolutionary perspective, um, has, has a history going back to Darwin and some of Darwin's earliest interpreters. And early on, it was treated as, you know, Nietzsche being an example of looking at what evolution tells us about our origins and trying to draw moral conclusions from that. And his moral conclusion was we need to get rid of the categories of good and evil. They clearly don't mean anything. They're just artifacts from a previous stage that we don't need anymore. And his whole idea of transcending good and evil to get to the next stage of evolution was really to take a moral leap that was uh, derived from a Darwinian perspective. So his claim that um, 
what we need to do is, is this is the next step to get to the, the ubermensch or the overman or superman. Mm. The superman is the one who transcends that, that historical moral division between good and evil, and we need to go beyond that. So um, others, uh, for example, Sartre and Jean-Paul Sartre, early 20th century existentialist, draws some of the same conclusions from that. Given that there is no God, what does that tell us about morality? Well, it basically tells us there isn't any such thing. And the only question is uh, how we're going to choose to live in light of the fact that we have this radical freedom now. There are no constraints. There's no essence out there that we're supposed to be um, manifesting or trying to actualize or conforming to. Yep. Um, A few decades ago, so that's a very dark view, it's, yeah. a, it's a very uncomfortable view, but in my opinion, that is actually what follows from the naturalist perspective. But the last few decades have seen a shift away from that, and people have said, well, you know, maybe evolution isn't so bad. Maybe, maybe actually what it does is it makes us altruistic. It makes us caring and compassionate yeah, because... It, you know, what's the book, The Loving Gene or the... Uh, uh, I thought there was like a, a riff on the selfish gene that sort of... Um, I could be misremembering. Kind yeah, of making maybe, that case. maybe. Uh, certainly, people are out there making that case. I don't know that that particular book. I know the selfish gene, but I don't. But people have been pushing for that perspective, and the question is, can that work? So they'll point to things and say, "Well, you know, look at look at how um, nurturing our young and caring for the infirmed, uh, the old." from a certain way of thinking about evolution, those would be terrible things to do, right? Because um, this person contributes nothing to us, is a drain on our resources. You know, why shouldn't I um, kill my neighbor, take his wife, steal all his stuff? You know, the evolutionary answer to that might be, well, because you'll get put in jail, but there isn't exactly anything wrong with it. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't help you. It doesn't, it, it, it will, if you're not careful and you get caught, it will actually strongly inhibit your ability to, to thrive and reproduce. Yeah. Seems like it all boils down to pragmatism. Right. It's just kind of what's going to help you get ahead. But there, there is a leap, an unjustified leap from nature makes us this way. Uh, you know, so the, the Nietzschean perspective is nature doesn't care how bad we act. Um, and the new perspective is Nature does care, it wants us to be kind. But the problem is you still don't generate anything from that. You know, so what if nature, whatever that means, if nature wants us to be kind or altruistic, so what? Why shouldn't I be what David Hume called a sensible knave and do what I can and if I can get away with it, then that's great, good for me. Or what Plato talked about in, in his example of the Ring of Gyges and the, the story of Glaucon, uh, that Glaucon tells about a, a magic ring that somebody finds. It's very much like the Lord of yes. the Rings. And finds a magic <laughs> ring that can turn him into Tolkien. Yeah, yeah. It's a magic ring that can turn you invisible. And then, of wow. course, the guy becomes a total rascal and uh, ends up committing all sorts of heinous acts. But he can get away with it, and so he does. And the question is, why should I not do that? And regardless um, of whether it does help my my uh, my tribe or whatever my my population advance. Why should I care about that? Like I've I've gotten to the stage as a human where I can actually reflect on those instincts 
and I can ask whether I should act on them or not. Mm -hmm. And regardless of whether I also have those, like I have the instinct to love my wife and to care for my children and to, to be kind to people in need. I have that instinct too. But I have other instincts that I definitely should not act on, mm. right? Um, if all we do is act on our instincts, we're psychopaths. I mean, that's almost the definition. We think that whatever we want to do is what we ought to do. So on what basis are we picking the instincts that we happen to like as a culture? No, we should be tolerant and kind and altruistic. That's very convenient. It's a very convenient narrative to tell because that's what our culture happens to value right now. But why should I do those things? Why should I act on those instincts rather than my instincts to anger or my instincts to greed or whatever my instincts might be that are, that are not in keeping with the commonly accepted contemporary moral code? Why shouldn't I act on those and only on the altruistic ones? Mm -hmm. And if the only answer is because the altruistic ones will promote survival better, then my question is, well, why would I care about anybody else's survival? Yeah. You can't say because you should. There's no, you can't, in philosophy we talk about deriving an ought from an is. All of the descriptive statements about how people happen to be inclined are never going to be enough to generate a moral obligation, an ought. You ought to do this thing. And I think about, um, I have, I'm very popular with squirrels in my yard because we have <laughs> walnut trees in three of our four corners. I've just had um, some, some very heated disagreements with squirrels lately about whether they should live in my boat for the winter. And the two of them that, that, that decided they should uh, found themselves relocated to a park far away. Mm -hmm. um, but we have gray squirrels. And uh, they get along with each other very well. They'll, you'll have two or three or four squirrels in a tree, and, and they'll just be doing their own thing. They'll be eating their walnuts, and you know they'll come and go as they please, and they're very cooperative, and, and they get along just fine. But then the red squirrels come in, and these fiery redheads will chase out all of the other squirrels. They'll attack them. Um, they'll chase out each other. They're very competitive, and they're very hostile. And the question is, is one of them doing it right and one of them doing it wrong? Is one of them better or worse? Should I really be morally offended at the behavior of the red squirrels? They're both thriving equally well. They're both surviving. They, they do what they need to do. They're both doing great. We have no shortage of squirrels. I wish we had more of a shortage of squirrels. But they act, you know, the gray squirrels act in a way that we would approve of. They're cooperative. They're patient with each other and so forth. <laughs> and the red squirrels act in a way that we would disapprove of. We would call it greedy and avaricious. We would, and, yeah, transplant those onto people. Right, right. But the squirrels are just doing what they were wired to do. And, and on what basis, if, if we are like that too, on what basis are we distinguishing what we call the good instincts, the ones that we ought to act on, from the bad ones that we ought not to act on? And if the only recourse we have is an appeal to survivability, that's not going to cut it. What would, a, what would a materialist scientist sitting right here across from you say to that? How would, how would he or she respond? Some of them are honest enough to say, yeah, that's right. At the end of the day, we have nothing but these feelings, and it's uncomfortable to go against them. But I recognize that doesn't actually generate any obligations. Mm. So some of them are, are bold enough to admit that. Now, whether they can actually live consistently with that, thinking that their, their moral feelings are, are really just an illusion foisted on them by evolution? Um, that's another question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Maybe the last question, um, maybe the most important question, is there any truth to the idea that we only use 10% of our brain 
and that if we could somehow tap into the other 90%, we would, it would unlock all of these mental powers that we aren't used to having? Well, let me preface that by saying I'm not a brain scientist, but the answer is definitely no. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that is a myth. We use our whole brains. Mm. And, uh, you know, the, I don't mean to disparage science in any way. Like I said, I have a background in science. I find science very interesting. I always have. We just have to understand what it can do and what it can't. And when it stops and another, another uh, endeavor like philosophy or theology begins... But no, we, uh, we need our brains. Uh, it's true that if parts of our brain are damaged, very often other parts can make up for that and form new connections, but that doesn't mean they're not being used now. Mm. Um, so a lot of the things that, a lot of the old popular myths about the fixity of our brain, the, the fixity of the neural connections that we have, that we can't keep uh, forming new connections, all of that has been debunked. And yeah, we, we use our whole brains. Yeah, yeah. Is it neuroplasticity, this right. idea that the brain can kind of... Uh, it's highly adaptive yeah. and can restructure itself uh, in, in times of need or yeah. in response to problems, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, Brad, thank you so much for taking some time today to talk with me. My and, pleasure. And just share, yeah, the, some of the uh, interesting things that are going on, not just in the science of cognition, uh, but, but really helping us think a little bit more Christianly about who we are as people and how uh, our souls and spirits relate to our bodies. Um, yeah, appreciate you taking the time. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was Brad Sickler on the brain, cognitive science, and faith. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, God on the Brain, what cognitive science does and does not tell us about faith, human nature, and the divine. Available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, would you leave us a review? That helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.